Welcome to Stories That Stick, Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. Do you know what I mean? It's like one black man told another black man, you can. Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. Apologies for not actually having an episode out last week. The truth of the matter is, it's been well, very, very difficult last couple of weeks. In fact, maybe even last month that we do need to take a time out. I think for those of you who have been following Black Ticulate as a platform, you'll know that Black Ticulate is all about black stories and positive actions. So we always, always try to promote individual black successes, collective black wins, And just create a safe space, really, for people to know when they land, they won't see any negativity. They'll be empowered. They'll be able to better their circumstances. We hope. We hope. We never truly know, but that's our one wish. But also, we want to let you guys know, we definitely need you to know that we are here. If you ever feel the need to talk, please don't be afraid to reach out because we are always here to listen. Always. Now let's shift gears a little bit. Today we have Roy Alexander Rice, who is one half artistic director and CEO of the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester. He's also an amazing theatre director. Titles such as Nine Nights, The Mountaintop, Master Harold and The Boys, to name but a few. Now in the episode, we talk about biblical stories. We also speak about the education system, how it penalizes energy, specifically black boys, and of course all the stories that made a huge impact on Roy for being the fantastic individual that he is. Now without further ado, let's get into the episode. Bye. Well, welcome, 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 Roy, to Stories That Stick. Hey. How you feeling? I'm hot. <laughs> Metaphorically or oh, no. <laughs> no, it's just a very hot day. Um, and um, I'm sitting in a room upstairs in my house, which felt like a good idea. But <laughs> now that the sun's shining, it's like, it's quite hot up here. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, it's all good. How are you? I'm okay. I mean, I think for most of us, if not all of us, it's been a tough few weeks or even like month in truth. Mm. But I don't want to derail us too much into that conversation because that could be an entire podcast episode in of itself. <laughs> um, I normally start the conversation around death. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and I'll explain why is because this podcast series is fundamentally putting a spotlight to amazing individuals like yourself. And I think death tends to inform how we live. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about death? How do I feel about death? Um, do you know, it's really interesting. Um, and it was quite funny, like <laughs> with all the questions that you sent me in advance. But I used to have a really massive fear of death as a child. My family are Ghanaian and Jamaican, and I grew up like in a very Christian family, but we also went to like um, the like black church. 
<laughs> so to speak. But we also went to the Catholic Church, which was about helping us to get into good schools. And I just remember being taught in catechism classes about purgatory and hell and death. And it just felt like this big, massive, mystical thing that I didn't really understand. Did it weigh heavy on you in a negative sense or? Yeah, anything that felt a little bit adventurous, I was a little bit afraid of. Because when ultimately your death is connected to the way that you live like you say that is a really frightening thing I think when you're a child <laughs> yeah. because how do you know that you won't go to hell because you told someone to shut up or how do you know <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean so I think there was a bit of that as well I hear that I think that we are immortalized by the stories we leave and the stories that are told about us when we are gone would you agree with that um, yeah, I definitely think that there is a part of that kind of sits at the core of like the work that I do and the work that I think is really important. And yeah. So let's go into your first chapter, zero to 10. So your first decade. Who was Roy? Who was Roy? Like, yeah. At this tender age, you know. What was growing up like? So, uh, zero to ten. Gosh, wow. Okay, so I grew up in, like, the Brixton Oval area. Um, like, my family, for me, it felt, like, really average in a way, like, really normal. Um, only when I zoom out and got a bit older, I realised that actually we were poor in comparison to a lot of people. When you say we, Roy, who's that? Brother, sisters? So I grew up with my mum, my grandma, my older sister, younger sister and older brother. I don't know why I said it that way around. <laughs> no worries. But you're saying about when you zoom out. Yeah, I realised the odd things like a big trip. It wouldn't be easy for us basically to have the money to go on those trips. And sometimes it was mm. possible and sometimes it wasn't. It's that weird thing, isn't it? Like when you're poor, sometimes you like the things that feel really immediately important when you're young anyway. It's like, so long as I can have trainers that other people won't cuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, because I was the third child, there was a bit more like <laughs> fashion trend work that happened from my older siblings. So <laughs> I didn't have it maybe as bad as they might have. Although actually, like, I used to be quite trampy. I didn't really care about my appearance. And I guess I was afforded that because I was the third child. And I was a bit more wild. When you say wild, what do you mean? Because <laughs> uh... because it kind of counters to what you're saying about you avoiding adventure well I mean it's weird like I think avoiding adventure it, it was kind of really irrational so you know I remember like when it came to riding bikes for instance um, mm. I knew how to ride a bike I'd learned how to ride a bike really young but there was a hill that came round the back of our house it went around the park and down and round and um some of these bends, you couldn't really see cars or anything like that. So in my mind, I'd be like, yeah, I can do that. But then I would get to the top of the hill with my bike and be like, oh, crap. 
<laughs> and the irrational thought of of what might happen as I go down this hill would creep in. But did you still do it though? Yeah, I did still do it. Nice. You yeah. know, and I remember like, I mean, it moves into the next kind of like past 10, but I remember in secondary school, this um, boy in our, in the year below us, I think, I was like year eight, year nine, got knocked over and it just stayed in my head for ages. And my grandma still lives right near where I went to school, my secondary school. Well, there's now a really safe pedestrian crossing, which I absolutely always use. And <laughs> <laughs> because of that memory of when this boy got knocked over. You are in a black household. Your identity at the time, were you aware that you were black? Was there any race relation conversations? No. No. Like I knew that I was black, obviously. Um, and the culture that I grew up in was very much rooted in the places that my parents are from and those cultural and traditional aspects. And the music was around us. The food was around us. We were proud of that heritage yeah. and still are. I didn't really get a sense that my family were trying to make us fit in with white people. No, I hear that. So I tend to ask three questions to my guests of one of their fondest stories that they read or were told as a child, as a teenager and or as an adult. And Roy wrote biblical stories. Now, that's quite broad. Was there any particular story that you recall? Um, there was definitely a point when I thought I would be <laughs> like a pastor. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... I mean, I can see a similarity in terms of the life that I've chosen to live now, but... <laughs> I'm not going to let you get away with that. How? How's, what's the similarities of the life you've chosen? I guess, like, um, the thing that I loved about biblical stories is how the micro action affected the kind of macro epic proportions of mm. consequence. and And I think that had an impact on why... I guess I was afraid of death because yeah. like you hear about, ugh, I, I don't know why I'm struggling to think of a Bible story now, but like, yeah, I don't know. Adam and Eve, they eat an apple. They realize <laughs> that they're naked and they are damned for the rest of their lives. The simplicity of that kind of story, but somehow the spirituality and the magic of those stories, I was really absorbed in. I was always massively obsessed, funnily enough, with the story of like Moses and the Egyptians and the pharaohs and leading the, the Jews out of captivity. The idea of like the sea opening and people walking through the sea. There's something about that like imagination and I guess the idea that like all of those stories essentially were helping people to understand the way in which they should be living their lives. Yeah, there's a huge part of that that I have taken into my adult life. No, I hear that. I hear that. So let's do go to the next chapter, which is 11 to 20.
So, Roy, this decade, what sort of fun memories and stories stick? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's so, that's a big decade, isn't it? Like, right now, when I think about that, I can see blue blazers. Like, I, I, I remember school a lot. Okay, why? Because I feel like that's all I did. I feel like all I did was go to school. And, you know, in that way that school is very much, it's everything. It's like in school, you, it's the only forum, I guess, that you have as a young person to, to like start understanding like who you might become. How was your identity shaping? I guess I remember uh, like, you know, beef and cussing matches between African and Caribbean people, which was like quite tricky, I guess, because... I was half and half. Um, you wanted to be the person that had the best cusses. You wanted to to be the person that could take it. How were you? How did you fare? I feel like sometimes I'd be a bit rubbish at it, but then other times I would have the one-liner that would just shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> It'd be like, you know, a little mic drop. But I feel like that was the early part of it. And then I started to get more into creative stuff. And that started to occupy more of my time. So then I started spending more lunch times doing music. Producing, singing? I used to sing. Um, I learned to play keys. Um, I jumped around lots of different instruments. We, again, like couldn't afford an instrument of my own. So like I'd take up guitar lessons and then there would be a point when I needed my own guitar. And I didn't have a guitar. So then I started learning drums. And like, where was I going to put a drum kit in my house? <laughs> um, Were you thinking about making that into a career? Your well, yeah, that was absolutely kind of where I was going to go into music. Is that because you enjoyed it or because people saw you were good at it? Because I enjoyed it. I also had two cousins who, um, they were really into music and my older cousin Charles, he used to produce like house music. Okay. So they had like music producing software on their computer side. I'd mess about and make tracks with them. Um, Amazing. I wonder, does any of them exist? Did you put it up on like SoundCloud or something? No, it wasn't that deep. But if I ever did release any of this music, I would hope that nobody would notice me. <laughs> okay, so we're still, I'm hearing you, we're still in um, secondary school. And you're thinking potentially career-wise to go into music because you had a passion for it. Mm. Am I wrong in saying this? That's the career path you were thinking to do? Or was... No, I was I was thinking to do that. I mean, it's really interesting because I kind of started to go to Oval House whilst I was in secondary school. I wasn't really into drama, but they did a music program there. So I was doing a bit of the music producing there. And then in year 11... My mum got really ill, like very suddenly, and then she passed away. And everything just kind of stopped. But having been at the youth theatre and told some of the people what was happening, I then got kind of persuaded to do a play. And it was a play called Chat Room by a writer called Ender Walsh. So this is where the story that you wrote for the prompt, Chat Room, comes in. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. For those who don't know, can you give us, I guess, a brief synopsis, an overview of the play? Of Chat Room. Yeah, of Chat Room. So Chat Room is 
um, a story about a boy called Jim. It's set in Ireland, and every scene of the play is set in an online chat room with other teenagers. At first, it feels as if Jim has come to make friends with people, but you quickly realise that the reason that Jim is there is because Jim, he's really struggling to deal with some stuff emotionally he's got a really terrible relationship with his mum and ultimately like his dad left and when his dad left he basically left him in the middle of a a zoo so he had this really horrible scarring moment that he was trying to navigate and the thing that happens there are some other kids that start to convince him that the thing that he wants to do is commit suicide online so it's a really, really dark story, but it's it's really funny as well. And the thing that it turns out that actually Jim just wants a moment to be a child again. Because he feels like he was asked to grow up way too fast. And I could see how that ran parallel with your reality at the time. Exactly, yeah. And also in my like mid-teens was when I guess... The personal relationship, I would say, with my dad was becoming a bit difficult. I am with you with chat room and why this story stuck and particularly how it started bringing you into the world of theatre yeah. and drama. Yeah, it, it, I mean, like, it just, it felt really, really hard and way too close to the bone. But I think, you know, I was so fortunate to, it's mad because... Today, I had a message from Nikolai, like a voice note, Nikolai, who ran the youth theatre at the time, just saying like, Roy, I know you're in Manchester right now <laughs> and you're in isolation by yourself and um, I'm thinking of you. And and it was like, he was just as kind then. He was like, actually, the moment when I found out that my mum had died, it was like late at night. And the next morning, the first place that I went to was the theatre. And I told him, and Nikolai's like a tall, massive guy, and I was quite short then. And I just remember him like completely enveloping me in his arms. And everyone at Oval House was like, they all became a massive support network. All the other people in the youth theatre group became a really massive support network. And that process enabled me to find the ways in which I could express what I was experiencing. And I guess doing chat room was like the first springboard for understanding that I was more creative than academic. I understood more concretely how important like creativity and expression was. Yeah. And the stories matter. Yeah, exactly. And that that story allowed me to see what I imagine would have been a white boy from Ireland in a very, very different scenario from me. But what we were feeling wasn't too dissimilar. And I think that that's when I understood the power of stories. And I guess that's why, you know, linking back to what I said about, you know, carrying the good word, it's like, that's why I think stories are so important because what you feel is really huge. Yeah, no, I hear that. And that actually kind of is the foundation to all the stories and the work that you actually do with your plays from the mountaintop, Nine Nights, to the mm. Master Harrows and the Boys, to Luminosity, The Trick, etc., etc. Let's go into your last chapter, 20 plus. 
how have you become the person that we all know you to be someone who is just an amazing director for plays that tell authentic stories that don't shy when it comes down to underrepresented voices bridge this gap 20 plus hit us so i did college i went to John Ruskin College in the two years, which felt like a bit of a waste of time because I, it wasn't a waste of time, but essentially that was the moment when losing my mum really hit me. So I didn't actually leave college with any, any qualifications that I would write down anywhere. Let's just say that. (laughs) So I spent two years at John Ruskin and according to my grandma, it was like, well, what were you doing? Um, anyway, so I went to college again. So I did drama and fit studies. I did English language and literature and I did film studies. And I think that was because youth theatre was really helping me to shape what kind of life or career I might have gone into. But again, really struggling with finding ways to communicate that to my family because I think there's something really hard about when you come from a poor family. The thing that's really hard is that all not all that you talk about but so much of what you talk about is money Mm. and how you get it and how you hold on to it you know all of that and that's quite tough and I guess because I was like I say because I was a younger sibling my attitudes my ideas my my um questioning all of those things like in a way I didn't have to have model behavior I mean, I've decided that I didn't have to have model behaviour, but of course I, <laughs> I, I did because I have a younger sister. Um, yeah, what's, I guess... What's interesting, Rory, and sorry to interject, but what is interesting is I would have never got this picture of you that you were, for lack of a better word, being disruptive. Oh, God. I mean, there are some things I'm leaving out <laughs> on purpose. Like, okay. yeah, I was on report for all five years of secondary school. I don't think there was a week where I wasn't sent out of class at least once or twice. The one term where I wasn't on report was was the term after my mum had died because I was really quiet. Yeah. Because I'd been changed by that event. But actually before then, I I, I wasn't acting out. I, you know, it's really interesting because I... Again, going into my adult years, one of the the things that was really crucial to me being able to sustain a career in this industry is I did a lot, a huge amount of work with young people for a really long time. In fact, I only stopped doing it about 13, 14 months ago because the, the magnitude of some of the tasks that I had to take on in my other professional life were getting really big. And then now, obviously, with this job, yeah, it's impossible to continue doing it at the level that I was before. But, you know, um, you know, with the young people that I work with, especially in a drama class, almost all of them are the kids that couldn't sit still in class. There's something about the education system that criminalises energy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, for sure. There is a famous TED talk by Ken Robinson, which he goes, education kills creativity. Hmm. And it is, I guess, following along the lines of what you, what I believe you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a very Western thing, isn't it? Of, of the way in which children are taught to behave or pre- supposedly preparing children for adult life. Mm. A huge part of that is like suppress all of that energy, suppress that energy. 
um, yeah, toe the line. Yeah. And I think actually it's a really dangerous thing, isn't it? Like I've seen it as well in schools, like some children develop a reputation in the school. So then every teacher that teaches them is looking for that behavior. And the minute they get a hint of it, that behavior is criminalized immediately. So there are children who I have taught who understood that they are bad youths. Their teachers will tell them that these kids will never get anywhere, that they'll never do anything. They tell them that they are, yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes I'm talking like nine, 10, 11 year olds. Can you imagine? And can I be real? Please. Black boys being told that. That is this, sorry, Roy, no apologies. Go on, you go. Did you start working with youth centres immediately after college or after uni? Because I love, you know, how you're helping our community, especially black boys. But I'm Mm. wondering, when did this begin? Because we haven't yet really bridged this career that you were going down. Yeah, I... Yeah, go on, sorry. Well, so, so I guess the thing that... So, yeah, college happened. Also, during that time, doing a lot more youth theatre, I get my first job at Oval House as an usher, really Amazing. quickly then get a job as um, one of the facilitators there as well with the Youth Arts Programme. So mm. so I'm learning facilitation. Facilitation is essentially the beginning of me understanding that I can be a director. And again, it was Nikolai at Oval House who goes, there's this project and you get a shitload of money and you can put together a, a team of people that you want to work with. And I worked with my friend Zephyrin Tate, who's a brilliant actor, and we created our first pieces of work together. And I directed because Nikolai told me I could. Do you know what I mean? It's like one black man told another black man, you can. Honestly, Nikolai, shout out. He's, he's the most incredible person. And this man has foot soldiers for days out there in the world who, who will tell you with their mouths that they owe him so much. He, you know, he, he just has and always has had a brilliant way of lifting us up. I feel like a lot of what you do put out there, your stories that you do direct and the likes, you are very much touching on race relations. Mm. Purposely done. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the beginning of all of that came, um, I had like a gap year and that's when I really got into directing. I decided to apply for a directing course at Rose Bruford College. And I got in, it was an amazing course. It was really bespoke. There were seven people on the entire course from around the world. Like it was quite, I, oh, I, wow. I was really shocked that I got in. So I went there and um, within my first week, I was like, I am not supposed to be here. I had never had so many people point out to me in the space of a week that I was black. Mm. That asked me where I was from. And the funny thing about it is like Rose Bruford was in Sidcup. And there were people coming from all over the miles, hundreds of miles away, who somehow just dominated that space. And I was like, but I'm the Londoner. Why am I made to feel like I am other when I am in London? Of course, yeah. then I learned that Sidcup, 20 minutes away from where Stephen Lawrence was killed. It was a really painful time for me. Again, like Nikolai was there to go, you can't leave. You cannot leave. Because I think some of them might expect that of you. Yeah. Fuck it. I'm I'm doing this. Like I, I have to stay. And I loved doing it and I loved stories and I understood that was when I started to understand 
the philosophy that I have about how stories are everything and, and everywhere. I could talk to you for like two hours. <laughs> Again, I'm acutely aware of your time. And okay. We will have to wrap up, but you did mention Greek tragedies. Yeah. <laughs> it's living in an African home. It's like a Greek tragedy. Everyone experiences everything so like intensely and acutely. We're not afraid to shout. <laughs> but At also all. like the democracy of it and the stories are about democracy and about a society learning who they are and what their roles are. So, yeah. Thank you very much for your time and for being on Stories That Stick. If you're ever in London, I'd love to bring you into the studio for us to continue yeah. just the amazing work that you do do. Thank you. I want to congratulate you on your members of the British Empire stamp. Ugh. I mean, when you say it like that, it feels really hard. <laughs> yeah. I do know certain thespians and artists who have opted out of it. So I did want to know why you opted in. But let's say to be continued. Yeah? Oh, you can't leave it on that note. <laughs> well, I'll, I get it's your no, time. I'll, I'll <laughs> say very quickly, I can say I'm Ghanaian all that I want. I can say I'm Jamaican all that I want. But when I go to those places, I'm British. It's really simple. Mm. And in this country, if I don't claim that Britishness, Essentially, I'm also rejecting the privilege that comes with being British. And that privilege, all of that privilege, is essentially everything that all of my ancestors have done and given. The lives that have been lost, like all of that. No, I hear that. And also, I can't take away from my grandma something that means a lot to her, which is she loves the Queen. <laughs> and for me, it's like in her old age... For her to go to Buckingham Palace with her grandson, who is being recognised for his work, I think it gives her a moment to understand why she sacrificed so much of her life. Essentially, I asked her if I should take it or not. And when I told her, she fell to her knees and started crying. My 84-year-old grandma, and she's the only parent I have left and has been the only parent in my life for the last 16 years so yeah well Roy how can we find you on the world wide web and when we do don't come and find anything... me ah, don't come and find you don't Shana. come and find me I'll, I'll come and find you I'm joking <laughs> is there anything you'd like us to do when we find you because you're an amazing individual and you're an inspiration oh bless you man thank you uh just say hello. Be good to other people where you can be. We definitely need it in this current environment. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, What's your preference? Twitter, Instagram? Um, Twitter. It's at R-A-W-E-I-S-E, artist. Well, guys, once again, thanks for listening to another episode of Story That Sticks. And as always, please do like, comment, subscribe, because it really does help us grow. Stay tuned for another episode. Bye. Hey guys, if you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please do get in touch.